0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm very excited today for my guest, Scott Ackerman, who you're going to find out a lot about. This guy is a force in the entertainment business and has pretty much held every single title there is in the entertainment business from writer to host to director to producer to actor, to entrepreneur, to creator. Just amazing what he's done to just utilize every cylinder in his engine. And the things he's been involved with have just been with the highest level of talent in the business. And I'm excited that you're about to hear what he has to say because he really, really blew me away. And before I get started, I just want to let you know that I am so grateful to all of you. I know I sound like a broken record, but this podcast has been more than I ever thought uh, it could ever be. And I'm a positive person. You have all been so supportive, so great, and I can't thank you all enough for all your support. And I also want to give a shout out to the team at iTunes. They have just been so supportive of the show. I'm talking about Steve Wilson and James Boggs. I'm so, so happy that they have seen something in this show that maybe I was shocked that they would see because they've been involved in so many different things and there's 375,000 podcasts in the world. And to have these guys take an interest in our show and take an interest in all of you and and how supportive you've been of the show and to help advertise it and help push it and help let everybody know that it exists. I can't even begin to thank them enough. And so I normally do this podcast where I actually sit down across from my guest, and I look at them and I don't know what I'm going to say and I just tell a story or something that's on my mind when I look at them for the first time, like an improvisational kind of thing. But I knew I was going to be interviewing Scott, and I knew I'd been wanting to have him on the show for over three years. And I just wanted to have every minute possible when I was at the Montreal just for last festival to sit down with him. And I just couldn't bear to take any time away from it by doing any kind of cold open. And so I didn't record one. And so today, I'm actually overseas. I've been in Japan, Thailand, China. And I thought, what better way to do a cold open than to just sit down in my spare time here and listen to the interview and let you know what's on my mind. And as I listen to the interview that you're about to hear, The thing that struck me most about Scott is that he's a guy who is so accessible. He's a guy who, when he walked in the room, he was the kind of guy who you could tell why he was successful. You could understand how he was able to work with so many A-list stars. You could figure out why he was comfortable ...doing a episode of Between Two Firms... ...not only with the biggest stars in the world... ...but also with the President of the United States. He had this feeling about him, this aura... ...that let you know that everything was going to be okay... ...but also the kind of aura of a leader of men and women... ...a guy who you want at the helm of whatever you're doing if you want it to be successful. And when I got through with the interview and I said goodbye to him, when he left the room, I was actually drained because most people would think that when you sit down with somebody, well, how can you say you're drained? How is that possible? Are you drained in a bad way? But when you sit down with Scott Ackerman and you get to spend time with him, you're drained in a great way because the way he looks at the world and the way he went about his journey in the business, it expands your mind. It pushes your feelings of where you think you should be and how you can get there and that's the best way I can have to describe it and he's the kind of guy I can honestly say I've never really met anyone like him in my life and I don't know if I'll ever meet anybody like him again and I think the thing that impresses me so much about him is the fact that his navigational skills are amazing He's able to deal with every different kind of personality, from Sean Penn to Sarah Silverman to Will Ferrell to Zach Galifianakis. Every nuance of every artist he's able to tap into, and I think one of the greatest things I notice about him is the feeling that he can get the most out of anybody he works with whether he's directing a show or if he's just creating it. And so I think if I learned anything from sitting down with Scott and getting the chance to to talk with him for as long as I did that I could pass on to all of you is the fact that If you can just figure out in whatever job you're in Of how to be able to Mix with all different kinds of people With all the different kinds of idiosyncrasies But also maintain Who you are as a person And maintain the strength to stick by your guns As to what you feel Is the best way to handle any situation, but also knowing how to navigate within the people's minds and their creative thoughts and be able to lead without people feeling like they're being led. That's such a great quality and such a rare quality. And being around Scott, a guy who's done so many different things, And created so many amazing relationships. And so many people look to him as a guy who can do anything. That's all you want in your business life. Everybody in business that you work with wants to know that you're going to be able to navigate. That you're going to be able to deal with every different kind of client. But still keep the formula Of what you need to keep Still keep the creative vision On track that you want to keep But still in that way Make every different personality feel Validated Feel safe Feel comfortable And feel like they're inspired And that's what Happens when Scott Ackerman Is around And if you can figure out A way In your business To create those situations And navigate like that I can guarantee you You'll have a great shot At having the kind of career That Scott Ackerman has
1: here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz. see me. Infections caused by jacuzzi water.
0: I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking.
1: Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? How about the
0: air? Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy, and his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary, and I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. It is a very exciting time. After I read this bio, which you are not going to believe, this guy has more credits than IMDB, the website itself. It's unbelievable. He's done so many different things, and he's so inspirational. And I'm just going to get started, and hopefully, after I finish reading this, he will be awake. This is a guy I've been trying to get on this podcast since 1977, ladies and gentlemen, and he's finally here. Emmy winner Scott Ackerman is a multi-talented writer, actor, comedian, television personality, director, producer, and podcast host who is quickly rising to the top with the world of comedy. Ackerman is best known as the creator, host, writer, and producer of the parody talk show Unbelievable Comedy Bang Bang. Ackerman was born in Savannah, Georgia, and grew up in Orange County, California, attending Cypress High School and the Orange County High School of the Arts, studying acting and musical theater. He hosted a public access television show called Centurion Highlights, based on the school's mascot. He started the short-lived band, The Naked Postman, with Adrian Young, who went on to be the drummer for No Doubt. While attending Orange Coast College in Costa Mesa, he and fellow student B.J. Porter began writing together when they were both scripting and performing in a radio show called Lutz Radio. After a brief period studying at the Pacific Conservatory of the Performing Arts and touring the country as a musical theater actor, in 1995, at the request of their friends, Ackerman and Porter started performing at the Comedy Store in Los Angeles under the moniker The Fun Bunch. A name meant to parody improvisation groups. At the time, Mr. Show co-creator Bob Odenkirk was in the audience for the second performance and soon tapped the duo to write and occasionally perform on the HBO cult classic in its fourth season, for which he garnered an Emmy nomination. Aukerman appeared sporadically on the show, most notably as the model Theo Brixton in the Taint magazine sketch. To come full circle, Aukerman recently wrote and starred in Bob Odenkirk and Dave Cross's new show called With Bob and David. Netflix picked up four half-hour episodes, which can now be seen through their streaming service. Later that year, Ackerman joined a writer's lab writing film scripts for Imagine Entertainment. They worked on a variety of film and television scripts, most notably Run Ronnie Run, which he co-wrote with David Cross and Bob Odenkirk relationships everybody the mr show movie from new line cinema and the first draft of the tenacious d movie in 2004 he and porter received credit on dreamworks animations animated feature shark tale which was nominated for an academy award for best animated feature they went on to write an unproduced script for the sequel as well as an unproduced shrek spin-off film for the character Puss in Boots. In 2007, Ackerman released a self-described joke record, Scott Ackerman's Cuckoo Roo's Greatest Hits, which featured Ackerman and Sarah Silverman program writer John Schroeder. Recently, Ackerman has added comic book writer to his ever-growing resume. He has written comics such as Deadpool and Secret Wars Journal Number 3 for Marvel. In 2009, Ackerman took on the role as host Andy Sandberg's head writer for the 2009 MTV Movie Awards. He also wrote a feature script for his close friend Zach Galifianakis in 2010 for Fox. And that same year, co-founded the Earwolf Podcast Network as an umbrella to a number of podcasts, including the one he hosts, Comedy Bang Bang. The Ackerman's weekly podcast averages 2 million downloads a month and features comedians and actors in an open conversation about odd topics. Rolling Stone labeled the podcast as, quote, one of the top ten best comedy podcasts. It was voted Best Podcast by AV Club and Entertainment Weekly, called it consistently hilarious and always unpredictable. This past year, Aukerman was one of the writers on the 67th Primetime Emmy Awards with Andy Sandberg. Ackerman's production company, CBB Productions, is currently developing multiple projects for a variety of networks which will further expand Ackerman's unique brand of comedy. In January of this year NBC Universal Service CISO will showcase two shows produced by CBB Productions. Quite an accomplishment including the highly anticipated reality spoop, Show Bajillion Dollar Properties, and Take My Wife. For both of these shows Ackerman is the executive producer. In addition to this, Ackerman is the co creator, co producer, co writer, and a director of the Funnier Die web series Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis. The faux talk show has featured interviews with Brad Pitt, James Franco, Will Ferrell, Steve Carell, Natalie Portman, and a list that goes on and on and on. The popular web series receives worldwide attention, and each episode has been viewed millions and millions of times. Ackerman directed many of them, including Charlize Theron, Willis Farrell, and just so many different things, including Oscar Buzz, which was one of my favorites, and the Happy Holiday Edition episodes. In 2014, an episode was released with President Barack Obama. That was one of my favorite episodes of all time. It was designed to bring attention to the Affordable Care Act. Galifianakis engaged in his regular insult comedy style of interviewing, which the president reciprocated throughout the interview. Within 24 hours, the video of this interview had amassed upwards of 14 million views, Ackerman directed and produced this episode, which won the 2014 Emmy Award for Outstanding Short Format Live Action Entertainment Program. The series again won the Emmy for their episode featuring Brad Pitt. This guy is a force of nature. Please welcome Scott Ackerman. Hi.
2: That's <laughs> embarrassing to hear all that. <laughs> I literally, hearing it all, it seems like a strange scattershot career. Like, how have I been able to focus on anything? <laughs> like, it seems like there, it's, it's a little too all over the place. I should be a little more narrow-minded.
0: Scattershot and you go together like the words Kmart quality.
2: <laughs> oh, <Whoa>, interesting.
0: <laughs> That's not scattershot. That's amazing journey that you've had and that you've put together. And the thing about you that always blows me away when I think about you, and I, I've really not been in his world But so when you watch things from afar and you see things happening, you realize that you don't get to work with Charlize Theron, James Franco, Will Ferrell, Steve Carell, Natalie Portman, Zach Galifianakis. No, you don't get to work with them if you do great work. You only get to work with them if you're a relative unknown, if you are doing, holy shit, I can't fucking believe it, extraordinary work.
2: Maybe. I mean, I I, th- I think I got my start, you know, as you said, with Bob and David for Mr. Show, and I think there was less competition back in the mid-'90s. Uh, I think it was harder to find good writers, I think. I think I really lucked into the fact that I was doing, um, you know, the stand-up act and was around them all the time. And, you know, Bob uh, very much mentored me and uh would come and and introduce my shows Uh, you know he would see if like we needed a little boost he would get up and do stand-up before them or he would be in them so he's very gracious with his time but um i also think about it like on comedy bang bang the tv show uh recently when we needed some writers i think our head writer neil campbell went through 200 submissions and i don't think. Those guys knew 200 writers. I think they got like four submissions or something like that. So I think it was a little easier to break in at the time. That said, I think I continue to work with people because, you know, I try to deliver. You know, you try to make the final product as good as you can make it, whatever that process
0: is. Try.
2: (laughs) You know, I mean, for instance, you know, I'd never met Andy Samberg before doing the MTV Awards. um, And... I just really wanted to work with him. I was I was a big fan, um, and I had never done one of the MTV awards before um, because they, you know, you know, they don't pay very well, and it's kind of a lot of work for just a credit, you know. But I really, really wanted to work with Andy. So, um, so it's just one of those things where you throw yourself into it wholeheartedly, and um, however you get to the finish line, you, you got to make the person you're working with happy, and. You know, when when you have that kind of a reputation of like, okay, well, if you work with this person, the end result will be really good, however it gets there. I think, you know, people tend to want to work with you some more. So that's why Andy brought, you know, me back for the Emmys this year. And then Chris Rock brought me on to the Academy Awards and stuff. It's because, you
0: know, the end result is always really good. But Scott, you worked with a lot of people that Andy Sandberg hired. You Mm. work with a lot of people that... Bob and David hired. You work with a lot of people that Chris Rock hired. And a lot of those people aren't around anymore. Why did you break through and those people stayed behind?
2: I think, you know, my first job, Mr. Show, I really threw myself into it. I loved the show. I, I love comedy. So I wanted to be there all the time. Um, something, that Judd Apatow, I think, was talking about when he first started working with Gary Shandling, really resonated with me. Which was he was talking about how he he always wanted to to be the guy that over delivered and was never thought of, was always thought of like oh we have to get that guy. So when I was working on Mr. Show, I just tried to write as much as I could and write as many sketches as I could and try to be there in the room and constantly making stuff better and you know in a way show business is really just like when you're hired by someone they they want to use you as they they want to use you <laughs> you know they're paying you so you want to make yourself indispensable to people and you want them to go oh I can't do this without this person and I've had that as as a a boss as well I've had employees where I'm like I don't think I can do this job without this person and and you want to become that person when you're in show business Um, because otherwise there's a lot of people vying for your, your job and, you know, if someone's kind of funny, but they're flaky and, and they show up every once in a while and give some funny stuff. Sure. There's a lot of people like that, you know, but you want to be the person who's indispensable who they say, I just can't imagine going through this without, you know, this person on my team.
0: I don't mean to put you on the spot, but tell me somebody who you work with on the television show a new person that came in and you see qualities of them in yourself.
2: You know, I, I mentioned Neil Campbell before he was our head writer for the TV show. And he was someone that I, I, I believe I first started seeing him in uh, a bar uh, performing right out of college. He moved out to California and he um, was in a group called fireball deluxe with a few of his friends from Iowa And, um, I saw him and he, he was, uh, in the group with Paul Rust, who has a television show love on Netflix right now. And I saw, I saw them in this group and, um, you know, I really thought that there was that spark for whatever reason. It, it, it very much seemed to me the same as when Bob saw me back in the comedy store very early on. There was just something about, um... Neil's sense of humor that I really responded to. And so I, you know, tried to do exactly what Bob would do for me, which is, you know, uh, help him out as much as I could, appear in his shows. Um, I got, you know, uh, his manager. I invited his manager to come see him because he wasn't represented anywhere. Um, And then when I started working on the television show, uh, he was the first person I called to work on it. But that said, it all goes out the window if the person doesn't show up and deliver on the television show because the stakes are so high. So as much as I love his sense of humor and love him as a good guy, uh, were he not to deliver, you know, that job could easily go to someone else. But he he's a guy who over delivers and, and uh, doesn't over promise and is their first person there, last person to leave. Will work on the weekends if he has to, um and not only that, but his stuff is very, very good um always uh the best written stuff, and I can always tell when something is written by him too, because the it's just me as a performer, I relax like oh good, that's one less thing to take that I need to take care of. There's good material, oh good, you know and and doing the television show is so difficult that when you have someone in your corner like that who is so good and so exceptional uh it it's one less thing for you to worry about and i i literally couldn't see myself doing that show without him and i i told him recently you know the show is as much his as it is mine other than financially so <laughs> but <laughs> but i but i but that that is one thing you know when you find someone like that you will sort of move heaven and earth to make sure that you can continue working with them. And I, I, I remember, I think he got a very good offer to do another show, um, during our third season maybe or fourth season. And I basically told the network, I can't do the show without him. So we're going to pay him more than that other show would. (laughs) And, and we did, you know, and, and, uh, he He's just someone who really you know I can't imagine the comedy bang bang television show without because his sense of humor is all over it and um he you know the five seasons we've done he's been there every day um you
0: know just really really giving me everything that he has. I want you to know I had the opportunity to hang out with Magic Johnson for a day and I took him aside. And <laughs> I wasn't Around them that much, but I was around him all day, and I finally was alone with him and I just said, "You know what is it about you what What's the one thing that you can attribute to all your success and he just leaned down right in my face and he said, Over deliver, yep, and that's everything that you just talked about.
2: I agree, I mean, you know sometimes the jobs are are easy um and you're working with the best people, hopefully, you know, take between two ferns. Um, You know, Zach Galifianakis is a genius. um, But that said, um, you know, he doesn't want to just fly blind up there. And um, the same thing for when I'm doing my show, you know, you want to provide a lot of raw material for him to riff off of, you know, when, when he's doing the show. So, you know, he doesn't want to think about it. So I just take care of it, you know, and I deliver him 20 pages of jokes, you know, not ones that I've written necessarily. I'll maybe write three of the pages, but I go out to the funniest writers I know and, and I deliver him a packet of 20 jokes and we sit there and we go through it and we talk about what the thing could be. And he doesn't want to edit the pieces. He doesn't want to, you know, craft it, you know, and that's where, you know, I try to work with the best team and deliver the best product to him and one that he doesn't have to worry about that much. And he can just watch the between two friends with Barack Obama and just go, "It's great, thank you, <laughs> you know. And he doesn't you know and that's what you try to do is you try to give the person you're working with something that just just puts them at ease and and gives them one less thing to worry about in a career that is fraught with worry.
0: Take us through how you and your staff get Barack Obama to do Between Two Ferns. I always say, you don't ask, you don't get. And I'm a hypocrite because there's people that I haven't asked to do the podcast. I've asked you over and over again to do this, and I've never asked Kevin Hart or Howie Mandel. I come up here. I say, fuck it. I asked them, they say yes, and I'm like, I'm such an idiot. But it,
2: but it it, preys on your mind for a long time of like, oh... Because the, the nose do
0: hurt. They really do.
2: <laughs> they do hurt. They do hurt.
0: Your nose never hurt because I knew you were going to do this because... And I'm, I'm not busting your balls. I have a smile on my face. I never felt bad about it. I never felt bummed out because I knew how busy you are and how crazy it is. And I know that... Why do you do a show like this? You don't have to do a show like this. Well also so. I told you I wanted to do it. I yes. just couldn't at the time. That's right. <laughs> like the no's that really hurt
2: are the the non response nos. That that's those are the ones that really, really hurt. Those thing when people don't even answer. When people don't even answer. And you know that uh you know, a a not answer is as good as a no, but um, when it's someone you know well and they don't answer, it it's, tends to sting a little bit. And
0: I I, I have this technique that I do. With if you pass on the show, you have to really say, I don't want to do it. Because what I say is, look, pick any day of the year at 12.30 p.m. <laughs> and I'm there. I just was in a period over the last few months. First
2: of all, I did 80 episodes of the television show in the last two years. And then I was doing the Emmys and the Oscars and producing the other shows bajillion and stuff. It was, it was, I literally was working every single day. So it was one of those things where I said, I re- I would like to do this. I just can't in this period of time. So I'm glad that, that it ended up happening. Um, as far as the Barack Obama thing, I think it was like you say, you, you don't get it if you don't ask. So we were putting it out there a lot. I think. Who do you ask? You know, Funnier or die, I think has ties at the white house. I think they, they know people at the White House. They've done a few videos for the White House over the years. So we we had channels that we knew we could get it to them. But that said, you know, we were constantly hearing about people like Oprah, for instance, who was going to do one. We heard Oprah was going to do one uh, about a year before her show shut down. And, you know, there's no bigger star on the planet. And we would sometimes get these calls where... It would be an emergency call on a Friday saying, hey, and I'm just using Oprah as an example because it's one that I can recall. But, um, hey, Oprah wants to do this on Sunday. And um, are you guys available? And it's one of those things where Zach and I would go, all right, well, we have plans, but let's cancel our plans and let's go do Oprah, you know, and you start to get the process going and you start. You know, writing material and you start contacting writers and finding material and you start conceptualizing and you cancel all of your plans. And Funny or Die starts making production um, plans, you know, of how to get up to Montecito where she lives and where we're going to film. And then by Saturday, it's done and she's not doing it anymore. And usually what we would hear is at th- for the request is Oprah really wants to do this. And then when it turns into a no, we hear, well, Oprah was never approached about this. And when she was finally approached, she said no. <laughs> so, you know, they hook you with some, it's, it's usually someone's idea that it'll be a good thing, but the celebrity has not been consulted on that. Right. So we were, we're pretty used to that. And, and so we've, we've, put it out to Barack Obama for a a long period of time saying, hey, we'd love for Barack Obama to do this. I think he was interested in the uh,
0: 2012 election. And obviously when you're approaching a guest of that magnitude who you know may not have seen the show, Mm -hmm. you have to send them at least one example in your cover letter, a link of a show, sometimes three, which ones did you send him? I to don't look know. At?
2: I uh, all I know is the White House was aware of the show. That they knew it was, a, it was a big deal. They knew that it got you know tens of millions of of views. So they knew it was a big deal. They knew, but but we still had no conception of whether the president you know had seen the show, had ever heard of it. We had no idea. And and we you know, but we were used to being sort of strung along. So when it came up in 2014 or so, um we got a call from Mike Farah at Funny or Die who said, if this is ever going to happen, it's going to happen. And it's going to happen this week. It's my second guest on the podcast. Oh, Mike Farah was? Yeah. Oh, good. Good guy. Um, you know, we, we sort of took it like the Oprah thing where we go, oh, sure, it's going to happen. Yeah, we're going to do all this work. And then it's going to, you know, be snatched from us at the last minute. And so we went into it very wary. And I remember meeting Zach at um, his place and we were both like, this is such a waste of time. (laughs) It's such a waste of time to, to spend an afternoon talking about ideas for this because it will never happen. Um, but we did the ideas. We worked up a treatment, um, that the white house wanted to see of what we wanted to do with the video, which we usually don't do for people. Um, you know, if, uh, Brad Pitt wants to be on it, Brad Pitt, we just schedule it and then we do it. We never clear anything with them, but for the white house, they needed to, know what was going to be happening on the show i would
0: imagine also the white house has editing power over the piece i'll tell
2: you an interesting fact about that after i finished this part but um yeah so so uh the whole time we wrote it knowing that the white house is going to say no once someone if not the president, but one of his advisors actually read the document and went, "He's not going to do this,", this is, <laughs> like this is no way, or watched one of the older videos or something, you know, and said, "There's no way the president will do this." So we went into it just going, "You know what? We're we're going to make it as funny as possible." And if the president says no, the president says no, but we're we're not going to soften this. Or make it more palatable, you know, or do a fake Between Two Ferns video that's, like, not as funny as the other ones. Because, why, you know, why become some shill for, for the government? You know, like, we want it to be funny.
0: Now, this is the odd thing about your scripts that are very unique and different, and I think I should share with your audience. Normally, you send a script to somebody for their approval you have dialogue for not only the host or the character, but you have dialogue for the person who you're giving the script to. So they're sending a script and a treatment that has is is one-sided. It just has all of Zach's stuff. They might want to write stuff for the president, but he's not going to...
2: Actually, it was an interesting process because they did want us to write jokes for the president. So we did include some, but the the entire time i was very protective of it saying i don't want to show them too much material because they'll say no i really wanted it to you know i wanted to take it as far as we could and i said if we put all of our cards on the table and tell them what we really want to do with this video they're going to say no and at a certain point the white house um people that we were talking to i remember i was talking to one speechwriter who's a big fan um I had some phone conversations with them. At one point it became very clear to us that we had to lay all of our cards on the table. They were like, look, this is not going to happen if, unless you tell us everything (laughs) and unless you just lay it out there and, and everything needs to be cleared, unfortunately. And so I remember the day we went, all right, well, let's just tell them what we want to do on this video and give them some jokes that Zach's actually going to do. And, uh, and They got back to us and said, okay, yeah, this looks good. (laughs) And I was blown away. And I I really expected it to be taken away from us. But even so, when we went to the White House, um, we still thought that the president was never going to show up. We thought there was going to be some sort of crisis that he didn't, you know, had to take care of and wouldn't come by. So the whole time we
0: were in the next room sort of fidgeting. And where do you set up your production in the White House? We
2: were in uh, a certain room that they do a lot of interviews in that they're used to doing interviews with MSNBC and stuff. And then we were kind of hanging out in the map room, which is where they planned World War One, for instance. And there's all these maps up on the wall with like the sort of yarn and push pins, <laughs> you know. Um, and interestingly enough, we were. We were asked to to hang out there, and so we sat down, and one of the White House staffers who was in charge of the room came in and started yelling at Zach because he was sitting in a chair that was Lincoln's chair. It was like an antique. <laughs> and he's like, you can't sit there. And we were like, well, first of all, you never said we couldn't sit here. And secondly, you didn't give us any other chairs. Like, <laughs> give Give someone some chairs if you don't want us to sit in Lincoln's chair. <laughs> and so... So he was like, okay, I'll get you some chairs. And then um, then we casually went back to talking about stuff. And then the guy came back in and Zach had absentmindedly sat back down in Lincoln's <laughs> chair. And he's like, get out of that. <laughs> so the whole time we were expecting it not to happen. And so once it did, um, it was one of those things where we said, okay, let's just go for broke and try to make this as good as as we
0: want it to be. So take um, us through what you and Zach are feeling You're waiting. They say he's going to come, but you're waiting in that studio. You're hanging out. And is it the one time in your life, because you've met so many celebrities, and the one time in Zach's life where you guys actually have anxiety and that butterflies in your stomach?
2: Yeah, I, I don't think that I had it as bad as... Zach, and I actually don't think I've had it as bad as when I have to be a performer with the person. I think if I had to do Zach's job, I would have been going crazy. I've been pretty nervous a couple of times on the TV show and the podcast um, with someone I've really uh, respected or, and admired, or I've been in a situation that feels a little bit out of my control um, where I don't know the person or their publicist is kind of telling me what I can or can't do, you know, when you're in that kind of situation, it, it, it can feel a little dicey to you of, like, I don't want to step on toes. So I've I've been more nervous, honestly. I was more in a zone of, like, we got to get this done, and I was, like, kind of figuring out logistics of, you know, I'm told we have... Fifty minutes. I believe I had 50 minutes to do the video, which is not a lot of time. Usually we do them in two hours or
0: something. I actually am surprised they gave you that much time.
2: I was a little surprised by that too. But um, the one of the interesting things about it was we did this stunt at the end of the video where the curtain fell down and you see we're actually in the White House because we assumed everyone would think we were not at the White House and then that reveal was really funny to us. Um, but that took 10 minutes. to. It took us five minutes to set up and, and five minutes to, to do the end of the video. So I let everyone know, okay, when I only have 10 minutes left out of the 50 minutes, let me know. Because we have to stop everything and do this stunt. Now,
0: you don't mind if I ask from a technical standpoint... Mm-hmm why wasn't the breakaway curtain already set up behind him so that at the end somebody could just pull something and fall why did you have to do it again it was
2: a little more complicated than that it was it was um there there was a certain way that it had to be done someone had to climb up a, a big ladder it you know it's not to get too technical about it but it was a complicated stunt that we Got had it. to stop down and do um so i had 10 minutes so i, I said okay we'll do 40 minutes of of this. And then someone will let me know at 10 minutes, you know, when, when I have to stop. And so the other, the other very strange part of it was that I was told the president is a one and done guy. And he only wanted to do one take, um, before he got in there. And, um, I'm, you know, usually when we do these, they're a little more improvisational and, they can take a long time to do and so i was i was kind of saying okay well yeah we can definitely do one take um i said what if we have to do another one and his advisor said why would you have to do another one and i said well you know if if you know we have to go again because you know something didn't happen in the first take and the guy goes what wouldn't happen in the first take i said i don't know like uh you know if, if he could do something better and he's like why would he have to do something better <laughs> i was like uh if he gets a fact wrong <laughs> like i was trying to speak in their language of like <laughs> and he went okay tell you what if you think you need another take you it, it was like a Byzantine." uh you know system where I had to nod at him and he had to nod at the president and all this kind of stuff. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I wish we could just do another take. So um the president comes in and we can't believe it he's actually there. He meets everyone. Uh he and Zach chit chat for a while about stuff while we're, you know, exactly setting up. And um we get into the first take and we get about five minutes in and someone taps me on the shoulder and says, you have 10 minutes left. <laughs> In the middle of, we haven't even gotten through it. And I, I, my mind started racing. And also the other interesting part about it was the first take was not very good. Um, especially, uh, I think especially Zach's performance, he was a little nervous. And um, the president was pretty good, but it it just wasn't gelling. It wasn't really clicking. And so I've been told he won't do a second take. I've been told we're out of time. And so my mind starts racing. And I think in that situation, I think producer and director just kind of took over. And I started evaluating in my mind and like editing in my mind, you know, Um, because I'm very involved in the editing I started like editing the stuff we'd shot in my mind going, okay, how do we make a video out of all of this? And I started like putting all the pieces together while the take is still going on. And so, uh, the take ends and, um, I've been told the president won't like talk to me, you know, like he'll probably end and he'll just, you know, go, okay, thank you very much. And walk out of the room. The president turns right to me and says, well, how'd we do? And and I have this gentleman with the White House over here telling me not to ask for another take. I know, like glaring at me. And I just like tuned everything out. And I said, Mr. President, I think it got really good halfway through. And to be honest, I wish we could do another take with the of the first part with that sort of energy. But I'm told you're out of time. And he said, let's do it again. <laughs> and... So we did another take and it was like brilliant. And that's, you know, most of what we used in the actual video. And I I was just like sitting there going, I can't believe I said that. (laughs) I don't know what took over my brain to like. And when you turned around to the advisor, what was his look at you? I think think once the president says something's cool, everyone's like, okay, it's cool. It's cool, (laughs) you know, but I just, I don't know what it was, uh, you know, I think I think that's where nerves have to go away, and you just have to concentrate on doing a good job. And that's honestly where, to me, the project comes first, and whatever it takes to get the project is what's important. And um, if you have to, you know, talk to the president when you're not supposed to to get the project done, you have to do it. You know. But to, to follow up on the editing, um, we we thought that that the White House would know that they had um, more control over the editing than they did. Because normally when we do one of these with some star, we'll have to promise like they can take a look at, at the video before it goes out there. Sometimes funnier or Die, and to be honest, without our knowledge, will tell a star that they have final cut over it, which really bugs me because they never tell us that the star has final cut. And then you'll get into a situation where, you know... Justin Bieber or whomever is like dictating what's in the video, you know, and so that always bugs me. And so, but we, we, we were saying, you know, the white house is, they're going to exercise final cut over this and kind of tell us what to do. And as we were leaving, um, the sort of after celebration we had with some of the white house staffers, um, one of them came up to me and said, Hey, that was really funny today, but you know, obviously we're going to have to cut you know, a lot of it out and just sort of focus on the Affordable Care Act stuff. And alarm bells went off in my head of like, well, that's not going to be funny. (laughs) Like, you're asking me to cut funny stuff? Uh, Okay. And I started going, oh, man, this is going to be a problem Um, because the White House is going to insist on this. I think the
0: audience is going to find this fascinating. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You're walking out of the White House with your camera bag and your digital card and your videotapes you're walking out of the inner sanctum with everything and even if they wanted editing rights they don't have any of the stuff yeah we
2: have all of the footage and stuff I, so what are
0: they going to do repossess your income tax uh, return yeah it was well
2: i don't that's the thing i i expected them to know they had absolute power and and when we turned in the video and it was another very similar situation of when i turned in the the treatment of what we wanted to do i expected them to say All right, guys, enough screwing around like this was fun when we shot it, but let's we can't put this out. Let's cut this. Let's cut this line. Let's cut this line. I mean, there's some like hard jokes in that video that I never expected to get through. And the White House watched it before it came out and said, hey, this is great. Thank you. Do you think he watched it before it went out? I don't know that he watched it. And in fact, this was this was something interesting that we were talking about. We kept trying to handicap whether the president knew what Between Two Ferns was. And we, very much similar to an Oprah th- situation, were told, oh, yes, he knows it. He's a big fan. And we took that with a big grain of salt because we'd heard that before. And then, like with Oprah, when they actually get the ask, they go, no way. <laughs> I hate that thing. So we kept trying to handicap it and we were we were saying we were told he definitely did and we went oh okay and then when we got to the White House and we were having lunch in the um in the tiny lunchroom that not a lot of people get to eat in which was quite a treat um then uh, I believe Valerie Jarrett said oh we we have made the videos available to him or something like that, you know? So we were sort of like, oh, he doesn't know what this is. He walked into the room and he took a look at everyone and said, two ferns. (laughs) And we were like, this guy knows between two ferns. This is great. Now, we found out later that the night before he was talking with his family about what he had to do the next day. And he said, oh, and I have something called Two Ferns I'm supposed to do. He he had no idea what it was. And his daughter said, oh, my God, that's so great. You have to do this. It's so funny. And which kind of tipped him over the edge of like, oh, okay, I'll do it. But he thought the name of the show was Two Ferns. <laughs> so that's why he said Two Ferns. We thought he was shortening it to be cool. He literally thought it was just called Two Ferns. So we... We found out that he hadn't seen it before, but I bet he's seen them now. And and I I don't know whether he saw the video before it went out. I know the White House did and they were happy with it. Um, But what's interesting about working with the White House is, is normally we just surprise everyone with these things and we put it out online and no one knows. Just one day people wake up and it's there. And the White House didn't think they could do that, I think. So they had to leak the info that it was coming out about eight hours before it did to like one newspaper and i started i was at south by southwest in austin texas and i started getting like email after email after email from people i knew going is this true (laughs) did you do a between two ferns with the president and um normally we just like it to be a surprise but i think a lot of people didn't read that newspaper and they just woke up the next day I, i was taking a plane back from south by southwest in the morning and it was about six in the morning and I got to the airport and I saw two comedians who were also there at the festival and they had their computers open and their headphones on and they saw me come in and they're like, we're watching it right now! <laughs> <laughs> like, it was really one of the greatest just big surprises, I think, that we've, you know, put out. Uh, it, it was so much fun to just see the world, like, react with the surprise that it did and then to have it over that day and then the next day have it snowball um originally the the right um and the news media on the right like fox news they uh were like oh yeah he did a video huh okay and they didn't make a big deal out of it and then they saw how popular it was and so they felt the need to demonize it and they had Bill O'Reilly come out against it and all these people, and it made it more and more popular. And I saw such an uptick in the views once the right started saying it was bad and something that they shouldn't see. It got to be even more popular, and, and everyone was talking about it after that. Whereas I think it would have been like, oh, interesting, he made a funny video, and people would have said, oh, that's good. But once it was something that people should not see and something the president
0: should not have done— it blew up. It was incredible. Tell me how you and Zach came up with the concept or how it came together and where the name came from and what was the second choice.
2: <laughs> it. I don't think there was a second choice. It really was. Um, I'll tell you what it was for. I was doing a pilot for Fox a sketch show pilot that was supposed to be on Saturday nights, uh, I think before Saturday Night Live or maybe competing against it or something. So I was doing a pilot and um, we had a cast, a really talented cast and um, really great writers, but also we wanted to do short videos that, that were with people who weren't in the cast who maybe didn't have time to be, you know, in a sketch show regularly. So, and Zach was someone that I knew I wanted to do something with. So, Um, I put it out to Zach and said, Hey, do you want to do a video? And Michael Sarah was another person who wanted to do something. I said, Michael Sarah also wants to do something. Maybe you could do something together. And so he came by the office and we started talking about stuff and he's like, you know, he used to work in public access the same way that I did. And he said, Oh, I've always wanted to do a public access show called between two ferns because it always would make him laugh that that was the only set decoration that was available to a public access show where like two ferns that they happen to have in another office they would put it in there to to jazz up the the look of the show you know and these public access shows they only have like two backgrounds they have a black psych or they have like a sparkly one you know for an entertainment show so it he just said yeah could we do some sort of a public access show and i'm the host and so uh reuben fleischer who directed zombie land um he was the director of it and um he figured out okay i think we'll do a three camera thing and um we shot it in a basement of the studio that we were at um in a tiny room and it basically was like zach and mike improving and then we didn't have any prepared stuff for that one. We didn't have any prepared jokes or anything like that. But um, me and the other writers were like in the next room shouting out stuff of like, okay, try this. Okay, do this. And we knew it was really funny. They improved a lot and it took about an hour and a half and and then our editor, Daniel Strange, took it away and then kind of delivered it to us a few days later of like well this is what i think it could be and it was like brilliant his edit was was so good and we went oh wow this is yeah this is cool okay yeah i think i think people will like this and then we showed it at the pilot taping and it did really well and then the pilot ended up not going anywhere and we were like ah, i'd really like to for people to see that between two ferns thing what should we do with it and then funnier die was this nascent website that had just started um but we knew a bunch of people from UCB who were working there and we said nah, I guess we could just put it up on that funnier die thing and we put it up on funnier die i think in january and you know it had like a million views i think the first month or something it 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 got really popular and it was one of the it was very early in kind of viral videos so the first one was michael Sarah. yeah it was very very early in, in in viral videos and it 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 did really really well and it got a few million hits um and we just thought that was it we said okay well i'm glad that we put that video out <laughs> and we moved on to other stuff and then um a few months down the line jimmy kimmel Reached out to Zach and said that he wanted Zach to do a between two for. He was a big fan of that one. He wanted to do him another do another one with him for the Jimmy Kimmel Show, and we were like, "Really? We we already did it. What do you mean, do another one?"
0: Uh, So you're saying that you had no thought process of this being a series. You thought it was one and done. One and done. We were like, "That was funny. Let's move on." And, and that surprises me so much because you're such a visionary, but you never saw that this show, when I watched it for the first time, and I think millions of people watched it, they said to themselves, God, this is a talk show. It's interesting because I, you know,
2: I come from Mr. Show, which on Mr. Show, there was a big rule that we weren't going to repeat ideas. And um, there there were maybe two characters that we repeated over the a few seasons um, and it always felt like uh, is it like Ronnie Dobbs for instance that was one where it was like is this a new take on it and we we decided yeah okay it'll be a new take or three times one minus one so I I kind of came from that sort of background of just like what's the new thing what's the new idea and so I wasn't really necessarily training myself to figure out how to completely exploit a piece of ip you know the way that other people do so and you i I do that on comedy bang bang too of we never do an idea twice and we every single uh episode of the show is a unique experience um and so so i think i just just none of us ever thought that it would be something we would do again. Um, and then once we did it for the Jimmy Kimmel show, it wasn't a very good experience, not because of Jimmy Kimmel, but or how the video necessarily turned out, but it was a quick turnaround. We had to shoot it and, and put it out in eight hours. There were probably 50 staff members watching, which was not the case the first one. We did it in a basement with no one watching, and it just felt so comfortable. But when there were 50 people watching, us make the video it felt very weird to us um and it wasn't our best video i think it was it's, it's fine but it's not that great and we said um you know what i think let's never do this again <laughs> and so we decided not to do it again and then our friend john ham started blowing up in mad men and he was like i'd like to do one and we said well that would be fun i mean let's do it the way we did it before so we did it in a shed that funny or die had um, we cleared out all the lawn equipment and did it in a shed, and that one was fun, and we were like, I th- I think we could maybe do more of these, and then Natalie Portman called and said she wanted to do one, and that one became incredibly popular, and we were like, oh, okay, we have a thing here, like, let's keep doing it as long as it feels right to us.
0: I know i spent a lot of time on this show, but I think it's just so special, a project, and... And I've always felt that way, and everybody I talk to feels that way. Dang. When you do a woman, it's like roast battle, you know, if you mm-hmm. see that with Jeffrey Ross mm-hmm. on Comedy Central. I remember I was riding the bus here in Montreal when I first got here, and Sarah Tiana was on the bus, and she's a roast battler, and spatting batting this other guy. They said, oh, we're opening the show. And I said to the guy, I said, you're in trouble, pal. He said, why do you say that? I said, because you're opening the show against a woman. And no matter what you say during that roast battle, it's opening the show and there's a woman on stage and you're insulting the woman. And that is hard to do opening up.
2: Right, because it'll come across mean.
0: That's right. Later on in the show, if you were the third, fourth session and people are getting going, they understand So your first woman, Natalie Portman, let's face it, the show is designed to be insulting. How did it go with your first woman? You said it took off, but you knew you were writing in a way you couldn't probably go at her as hard as you went at some of the other people.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I I do think that Between Two Ferns, I would say 50% of the people like it because of their funny slams. You know like the 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 jokes that really seem to hit are the slams, and sometimes when I'm directing them and talking to zach it's it's something we have to remind ourselves is that at its core, while we're always trying to do something new with them at its core, it's like good funny insults are the backbone of that show, but at the same time, I think the other half of it is, is Zach is an idiot and he plays like dumb a lot, and that's why I think he can get away with slamming people sometimes. <clears throat> is because he plays the dumb clueless interviewer that doesn't know that's not something to say. So it, it it's interesting with that project between two ferns I definitely go into insult comedy a little more than definitely in comedy bang bang we'd never do anything with the guests that's like insulting. Um and even on the Emmys I know Andy didn't want to do really anything insulting and we had one joke that was so good that was a slam that I wrote that he sort of broke his rule <laughs> to to go ahead and do, which was uh, this year we said a lo- uh, goodbye to a lot of television shows. We said goodbye to Late Night with David Letterman. We said goodbye to Parks and Recreation. We also said goodbye to True Detective, even though that was still on the air. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a real, like, ah, do we do it? It's such a good slam, but it's mean. I don't know. And we ended up, like, Saying it's too good, let's let's just do it. But, you know, on Comedy Bang Bang, I've, like, cut jokes that are too mean, you know, because it's a different type of project. But, back to your question, it is interesting. I think on that one, in particular, Zach played dumb um, and the clueless guy a little more of, like, um, not not getting it. And I think that's a little more easy to take um, in that situation, you know, especially, you know, male or female. Some people don't like to see their stars taken down a peg, (laughs) you know? So if he plays dumb and is the butt of the joke, I think it it works sometimes a little better. Sometimes when someone is just as funny as Zach, like Steve Carell, for instance, um, a comic Titan was just as great at Zach. And so we had to come up with something new, which was Steve Carell insulting Zach. You know, and so it's a twist on it because, like Zach insulting Steve Carell, everyone's gonna go. But he's super funny. What are you talking about? <laughs> or Will Ferrell when Will Ferrell did it? You know, it just kind of went into bizarre land. You know, so it it it's kind of project by project. You don't want to be too mean, but then there are some people like a Justin Bieber that you go. You know what? Let's take the gloves off, and people want to see. Uh, Zach be mean to him, and so we'll we'll go a little more into slam territory. Um, but a lot of times, it's just person by person.
0: You know how in a roast, sometimes the guest of honor, at the end, you can tell they are hurt. Right. They Chevy are, Chase, most probably famous. That's right. Very very sad. Even though no matter how much they know about roasts and whatever it is, for some reason, when you get up there and you sit there. Some people occasionally mm-hmm. take offense to it and they're hurt. Has there ever been one person on the show that came on and you noticed that they were hurt?
2: I... You know, it's interesting you say that because, like, I was just asked to be the the uh, person roasted for something, not a Comedy Central roast, but... Uh, cause, um, those are for famous people, but um, for, for this other uh, thing, you're doing
0: very well and you are famous,
2: <laughs> but I passed on it. And I said, I, I have the internet. That's like the ultimate roast. <laughs> like I get insulted every day. Um, I, I think it would just, you know, I, I don't necessarily need my peers doing it to me too, you know? So I was like, as much as I appreciate it, no, thank you. Whereas Jimmy Pardo uh, for his, sort of bachelor party instead of having a bachelor party, he had a roast of him and it was super fun and he took it really well. And, and um, everyone was so funny, but I think um, it's an interesting thing because I think, you know, we don't tell the people with the exception of the president, we don't tell people the jokes before we do them on between two ferns. And so they are hearing them for the first time and they're reacting to them for the first time. Um, And so I think Zach is such a sweetheart. He he feels worse than they do about doing these jokes. And he, I, I remember the Natalie Portman one, the, the biggest laugh in that um, episode was something that I wrote about. Uh, I think it was, you shaved your head in V for Vendetta. Did you also shave your V for vagina? <laughs> and he didn't want to say it. And he wouldn't say it. And we we had a ticking clock with Natalie Portman where we had five minutes left. I remember, and I was like, Zach, uh, do you know number twelve? Like, because he has a sheet of paper with the jokes. I was like, do number twelve, and he's like, uh, and I have to become bad cop in this situation. And we sort of worked out a situation where he'll demur and say he doesn't want to do a joke and I'll be the one saying you have to do this joke which makes me the bad guy but you know because Zach is really just a nice guy and kind of kind of doesn't like doing slams all that much as much as he thinks they're good so that's the situation we're in where like I become the bad guy um but you know to her credit like this is what he did with Natalie Portman I remember he was like okay there's a really funny joke but I think it's too rude and she's like I don't care just show it to me and he like showed the pic, the uh the the joke to her on the paper and she laughed and said, Oh, okay, that's really funny. Okay, let me try to get serious about it. And then uh then Zach said it. He felt comfortable saying it. He said it. She acted shocked, <laughs> you know. Um so that's usually what happens. I think there's been I would say the one that didn't go over so well with the star was probably the Sean Penn one. Um because i think he expected a uh i don't know what he expected to be honest and for that one zach played his twin brother seth instead and had shaved his beard and just had a mustache and was playing seth who's kind of a very effeminate football coach um from north carolina and i i think he didn't expect that and so we got some some blowback on that i know of like that that sean penn wasn't happy about the video (laughs) but um for the most part everyone's been just you know happy and and knows that you know i mean look at the brad pitt one i mean we did some slams in that one that i never thought we were going to get through and he had a good time and it was great to work with so most people have like a good sense of humor about it
0: last question about this show comedy is subjective people say there's nothing new in comedy formulas are old but new concepts come about within those formulas the first time i saw between two ferns i immediately thought of something mm-hmm. and It bothered me that I thought about it because I thought to myself, I see Zach in a way that I have so much respect for him. He's just such an amazing artist. And I don't know you personally, but I have enormous respect for you. And I know how original and unique and special everything is that you guys do. And I thought the first time I saw it, as much as I loved it, two words popped into my head that affected me a little bit and I got over it because the show became something that's so special. And those two words were Jiminy Glick.
2: Mm, interesting. I mean, I'm a big fan of Jiminy Glick too. I think, I think that's true. I mean, I don't think the show is uh groundbreaking or unique. I, I totally agree with that. Um, and I think that um, the 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 details of it are unique. Um, Zach's performance and the certain way we film it and a certain element of the style is. But I think that that kind of clueless interviewer is a trope that I think even Jiminy Glick isn't the first one of it. So I don't I don't think it's like a great unique thing. So when people say, oh, this is ripping off between two ferns, I'm kind of like, well, come on. (laughs) Like there's a long lineage of this type of thing. Um, The times I do think people are ripping off between two ferns um, are when the details are exactly the same. There's someone on YouTube who does a show and he introduces the show with the exact same language that Zach uses, the exact same delivery um and that that kind of bothers me. Um, I think Martin Short. I hope he would say that they are different because the performances are different. Like Zach is not doing Jiminy Glick. Like Jiminy Glick is like brilliant, and I just not recently, but maybe four years ago, saw him do it live in Vancouver, and it's he's so amazing at it. And that is something that I think, like I'm saying that generality has been done a lot of times, you know, um, Alan Partridge, um, you know, uh, Fernwood tonight, you know, I mean that the, the fake talk show with an idiot hosting it is, is something that's been done a lot. I think it's the specificity of it is where you, where you can kind of claim ownership to it, you know? And so I think that, you know, uh, comedy bang bang is not, necessarily new but the way that we do it is new and i know that like in norman lear actually um i was told watch comedy bang bang and he was a guest on my show and... oh cool
0: yeah he watched comedy bang bang and was a big fan i'm a big fan too when you're creating and putting together comedy bang bang there's influences in the world of yeah. television and different things but when i saw that and i heard it i Maybe I'm just not as much of a historian. I didn't think of any specific show that I thought was similar. Obviously, when I mentioned Jiminy Glick and Zach, the performances, and that's what separates, that's formula and comedy. Like I said, nothing they say is new, but you try to take a formula and make it special. Romantic comedy, they -hmm. always start the same, they always end the same. Animal. Are two
2: people going to kiss? <laughs> I hope they do.
0: <laughs> That's why you're not writing for romantic comedies. I've tried. <laughs> never get Thank made. God you failed. <laughs> but the comedy Bang Bang, which I can't point to one show that somebody might say, you know what, that show, the formula for your show is the formula for the show and your characters yeah. with it are different. Am I, I wrong?
2: Think, I think the formula, It's a, as they say in the business, the format is Unique, I think. Uh, much like Saturday Night Live has a format that that is unique to them, I think our our structure of the show is unique. But at this, at the same time, I think, especially the first season, I was basically doing Letterman. What what I you know my impression of like early Letterman bits, and, um, and it's so
0: weird. And I feel so naive. I never felt that.
2: I think it's, you know, I read something about Radiohead once, and I am certainly not comparing myself to Radiohead, (laughs) but OK Computer, they were doing an impression of some other band, they thought. And they were like, oh boy, we're sort of a shameless ripoff of that band. But because they were doing it, it only sounded like themselves, you know? And so I think that that's kind of what it is, is like I can see myself like, oh boy, I'm really Carl Reinering it up at this point. You know, a two thousand year old man style straight man. I'm really doing a you know, a, a bold impression of him. But because it's me doing it and my brain, it comes out different, you know, but I, I can see the influences definitely. I mean, I think Pee Wee's playhouse is a big one that people you know, you always try to get close to to something and do it your way. I think a lot of the Pee-wee's Playhouse influences on the show, we were doing our take on those type of bits. We weren't doing those bits. The thing that we wanted to do was, in the first season of Comedy Bang Bang especially, we were doing our take, a different take, on any show that had a host. And Pee-wee's Playhouse was one of those shows. And, and our director, Ben Berman, figured out a way, he had a really unique, cool way of making inanimate um, objects come to life. And we were like, okay, well, on Pee-wee's Playhouse, the inanimate objects came to life and were always cute. Ours are going to be, like, sick and depraved. And the first time we ever did it was this thing, Magic Window, who um, we were supposed to look out. It was a window that talked, and it's still made a mouth. And, you know, (laughs) he just talked about how depressed he was and how he wanted to kill himself. (laughs) You know, So we were, in, in our minds, we were doing a take on... The Pee Wee's Playhouse stuff. And then naturally it kind of evolved into our own style. But at the same time, some people will just go, well, you're just – you're too influenced by – it's always a line that you're trying to walk, you know. Um, to, for for me, I I don't know everything about comedy, but I have been a big fan of it for 35 years. So I, you know – I know enough about it that I'm I'm pretty conscious of something where I'll say, "Hey, I can't do that. That's too close to such and such." Or where I'll see something and go, "Oh no, that's that's our own take and I feel confident about that."
0: All right, let's go way way back in okay. mind. Sure. Take us back to where you grew up. Your family life, the socioeconomic dynamic Ooh. there. What happened back then? The good, the bad, the ugly. And what was your first influence in wanting to get into the entertainment business, specifically comedy?
2: Right. Um, I grew up in Orange County, as you said, which is a pretty um, middle class. Uh, some would say upper middle class, but I think we were in the lower of the upper middle class um, area and uh, very, you know, super white and uh, religious family, conservative family, Republican um and, um, I remember, you know, I was kind of interested in performing, uh, I was in plays and stuff like that. Um, and then when I was 13, I was, uh, I, I got my first girlfriend and, um, we would go back to her place to. Sounded like you purchased
0: her the way you <laughs> yes. said that.
2: Mail order bride. No, she, uh, the, the first girl I ever dated, we would after school go back to her place and like watch videos and stuff like that and and she had monty python and the holy grail and i didn't know monty python i didn't i'd heard of it certainly it was on pbs at the time but i didn't really know anything about it so i watched holy grail and was blown away by it and i was like oh my god this is so funny um that was definitely one of the first things i remember in comedy i also grew up Watching Saturday Night Live reruns, the syndicated uh, reruns that they would turn into one hour from the seventies, um, from seventy-five to eighty, they would they syndicated those and would air them on like KCOP. I remember, so I would stay up and watch those. So SNL and Monty Python, and then in nineteen eighty-four, um, I started doing speech competitions um, in school, and speech competitions are like you know they have debate they have um things like dramatic you know people reading dramatic plays and stuff like that so i would go and i would do like monty python stuff um or the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy i would you know like kind of do impressions of monty python stuff and i got pretty good at that um but in 1984 um i started watching david letterman and that was like a big just like sledgehammer to the face for me where i was just like oh my god this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. I kind of changed my like entire personality. I, I already was kind of sarcastic, but I like drew heavy into irony and, and kind of started acting like a miniature David Letterman in a way of just like, you know, sarcastic and never taking anything seriously. And, and that, that I think is, those are the reasons that I wanted to definitely get into comedy that, that really shaped my personality um, once I actually did it in 95, um, it was mainly because of two things. It was because earlier that week, um, I, had, I, I went to go see Bob and David through some mutual friends. I went to go see one of their live shows that they were doing in order to get Mr. Show on the air. Um, and I was blown away by that because up till up till then, most of the comedy I'd seen was very observational comedy um and i and i loved it i loved seinfeld growing up um and you know all of those great comedians in the 80s you know the richard jenny and kevin Pollock and all those people you know i was really uh, a big fan of all of them but i never thought i could do that i in fact tried when i was 18 in a comedy competition at my college i tried to do observational comedy and you know, did okay, but I was just like, this is not my sense of humor somehow. But when I saw Bob and David, I was like, holy shit, these guys are doing, like, my sense of humor. I couldn't believe it. It was, like, stuff that I was doing around, like, the restaurants I was working at. You know, like, kind of weird, uh offensive stuff, you know? It was, like, what I would do with my friends, you know? And I was like, holy shit, someone's actually doing what I do with my friends professionally that's so crazy and 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 then I also saw the Andy Kaufman NBC special that they had made after his death and I didn't know anything about Andy Kaufman other than he did Latka on taxi and so to to be given an education in what he did those two influences just really made me go I think I think that and, and my friend had invited me to do the comedy store I said I think that yeah I think we can do this you know, and so I, I think those early performances that my partner and I gave were very much um, Bob and David influenced, and very much Andy Kaufman influenced.
0: Okay, so you're influenced by that. You're going to college. Take us through the story of how you met your partner and the man who really, together with you, collaborated on so many amazing yeah. things. Because fate is a very strange thing. Well, you know, it's it is it is fate in
2: in a certain way and in a certain way you just kind of find the people you like working with in every situation i mean when people ask me they say how do you get how do you start in comedy i basically say well move to where the comedy is and then find people that you're going to work with cuz those are the people that you'll work with for the rest of your life you know those are the going to be the people that they, they go, well, don't you have to know someone? Like, how do I get my script into this person's hands, this famous, this person who's already famous hands? And I go, no, 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 you like you guys are the people who will become the next generation of the famous people. You just got to continue to work. So I, th- I think it was that I, I, um, I met BJ Porter, uh, doing a play and, um, it was a play that we were all cast in and you were expected to write your own material, and we had the first read-through of stuff that people had written. And I wrote a sketch for it. It was a Christmas show. I wrote a sketch for it, um, like a 40s radio hour. I wrote a sketch um, based on The Gift of the of the Magi where um, a uh, woman cut off all of her hair to buy her husband a watch. And... Um, the, the guy hadn't sold his watch fob or anything. He was just like shocked that his wife was bald and was like, could you please put on a hat? Um, so anyway, I wrote that. And then, um, <laughs> BJ wrote some, uh, I think he wrote three pieces that I really liked that were all very, um, bob hope influence and bob hope was a big influence on me as well growing up i was a big bob hope fan and i was like oh wow i'd never heard anyone write really um write their own bob hope style jokes um because bob hope style jokes are very crafted very well i just appreciated the craft i was like oh my gosh i've never seen an amateur writing professional level bob hope style jokes it's just it's it's a hard thing to do and how and at 18 or 19 years old how was anyone that interested in writing bob hope jokes and then you know i talked to him a little bit about we we both met each other and we were both like hey i liked what you did and he said oh i liked what you did and i i'd start talking to him about bob hope and he was a guy who like would watch bob hope movies and sort of memorize the jokes and figure out how they were put together and then sort of reverse engineer them and write his own kind of based on those and sort of, and it was just really interesting to me that someone's mind could work that way, you know? Um, So we struck up a friendship and started writing stuff together, um, you know, mainly plays and, you know, goofs uh, at, at the college we were going to. And then I moved away and, and, and did, um, musical theater, but, um, and he moved to Los Angeles from Orange County. And, uh, you know, it just was one of those kind of like faded things where, um, when my friend Maleva um, Barbula, who asked me to do the comedy store and hooked it up for me, um, she, it was funny, BJ and I had written a pilot, an hour drama. Cause I was, I was like a David Mamet style playwright, I thought who also on the side did these goofy things. Um, she read that and I was like, oh, this is awful. Um, she goes, but you're really funny in your personal life. Why can't you just like do comedy? Because she was roommates with Karen Kilgariff and she knew Bob and David and all these people. And I was like, I don't know. I don't think I could do comedy. And then I saw Bob and David do it and saw that Andy Kaufman thing and it all just like coalesced in my mind and went bing. And I said, okay, BJ, we got an invite to do the comedy store at this show that, you know, Bob and David perform at and Margaret Cho and Janine Garaffalo and Andy Dick and all these people and it was like, let's let's do this, you know, and we came up with something we were gonna do. And it just like like a thunderbolt kind of came of like, oh wow, this is our sense of humor. Let's do this. And it went really well, and you know, it just was it, and, and you know, Bob was there at the second performance and and said, Oh, hey, it was really funny. You guys should write on my show. You know, and it it just kind of all took off from there. It was like kind of just a a coalescing of a bunch of different things happening, you know, that just kind
0: of hit me of like, oh, comedy. Yes. okay, I get it now. (laughs) Yeah. And so you get a job on Bob and Dave's show, Mr. Show. And something that a lot of people don't know about writing and the WGA is it's great to get hired as a writer on the show. It's... 50% 50% is great when you get hired as a comedy team financially. That said, what's very interesting
2: is they thought they could hire us as a team, and on a sketch show, you can't hire a team. Oh, that's right. And so they they told us we were being hired, I think, before they knew that they ha- had to hire us separately, and we're kind of upset when they found out that they had had to hire us separately
0: most productions want to save money by hiring teams at least one team on a production and because you don't have to pay both you have to pay them the same salary
2: i don't know why the rules are different for that but yeah it was one of those things where i think it could have upset the apple cart for us um but they they went for it and i and i have to say bob really went to bat for us um, because i don't think david wanted to hire us and um in fact, after the season wrapped, I, I went out to drinks with David and he he sort of told me that. He was like, oh, you know, like I didn't really want to hire you, but, you know, you were great and thank you so much. You know, it was just one of those things where once I got in, it was like I was very intimidated, very nervous. I, I remember saying to Andy Kindler, um, I was like, I, uh, I, I I don't know why I recall this, but I was on the phone with him. And this was back when everyone called each other all the time. <laughs> and uh-huh. so I would have like half an hour conversations with Andy Kindler, which you don't do anymore, you know, for some reason, even though we all have phones, like now it'll go months without me talking to Andy. But at the time it was like, no big deal. Call up Andy Kindler and like talk to him for a half hour. Cause like you're sitting around your apartment and you know, and so I remember talking to Andy and I was like, I, um, I think I'm really good at writing jokes by myself on the computer if I think about them and I thought I was like a craftsman or something. And I was like, I I think I can do that. And what I'm really nervous about is being in the room. And, and what if Bob or David turns to me and says, okay, do you have a joke for this? I don't think I can do that. Um, but I think I'll be okay if I can just like go in my office and just write sketches and by myself in privacy. And what is totally bizarre is I became the opposite person. The first day I was really nervous And I think all of the new hires were and Bob and David threw us right into the deep end and we're like, all right, so here's, let's read this sketch and let's talk about it. And so Bob goes, okay, what do we think? And everyone's very silent because no one wants to be the first person to talk. And I was just like, ah, fuck it. (laughs) I was just like, okay, well I think this and I just, something about my brain is, is like, I'm very opinionated about certain things and I have to get it out you know and so when i read that i was like oh i bet i know how to fix this and so i said okay here's what we do (laughs) and i just and and that's that's what kind of made me indispensable to them is i was the guy who always had an opinion right or wrong on how to fix something and um you know, I think in the in the Mr. Show book, Bill Odenkirk talks about like, you know, Scott is very opinionated and it's very bizarre to me that I thought I was going to be the guy who kept to myself when I became the guy who essentially was like always at their side, you know, giving opinions.
0: It's fantastic. And so you're in there, you're doing it and you're making just so you know, minimum wage writers on these shows. Make around $2,700 a week, which is about $2,700 more a week than he was making. Right. So I came,
2: I, 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 my unemployment ran out literally the week before we started. Um, and, and I had been on unemployment because I, I had been a waiter for 10 years and quit in order to work on a, like an internet only show that got canceled like a month and a half in. And then Bob kept saying, I think you're going to be a writer on the show. You're going to be a writer on the show. So I went on unemployment and then at a certain point I was like, Bob, my unemployment is out. I got to I got to know. And he's like, you're in, you're in. And so to have that 2,700 a week was so much money to me at the same time. I didn't keep track of it. And I didn't realize that a lot of weeks you're not getting paid, you know, like, uh, like you're hired for a minimum of weeks yeah
0: there's certain shows how they hire people it's changed over the years but if you're doing the nightly show let's say with larry wilmore you'll sign a 13-week contract for around four thousand dollars a week sometimes forty five hundred depending if they want to stretch it a little bit if there's somebody they really want and the 13 weeks might have like two or three break weeks that you still get paid on on that show but when he was doing mr show it's the opposite where you're hired for 13 weeks but it's a five month
2: process and there are weeks that you're not getting paid for that you're expected to work um and that you could if you were a jerk say hey i'm not getting paid this week i'm not working um and Yet, why would you ever do that? Because you're on your dream job and you're, you know, like I said, I love this show and I want to make it good. So I never kept track of the weeks I was getting paid or anything. All I know is we wrapped the show, I started it in in, in March or something and we wrapped in December and um, I went to the ATM and I never paid attention to my balance and I went to the ATM um, after the week we wrapped and my money was all gone (laughs) (laughs) and it had all been blown on magazines and movie tickets and CDs and it just was all gone. I was like, Oh God, what do I do now? (laughs) And what did you do? I, uh, BJ Porter and I had written a film script before we started the show just on spec that, we had been talking about since the college days that um, there was just this idea he had of, it was a really good idea. I do not want to say it because hopefully we're still going to make it someday. But um, that film script was, was, I remember I showed it to a bunch of people. I showed it to my family and they were like, "Eh, eh." and I showed it to my girlfriend at the time. And she was like, I mean, I don't think this is very good, but she worked for the head of propaganda films. And she said, I'll put it in the, to read pile and get coverage for you and she put it in the to read pile and it was the one script out of that whole pile that they said we would recommend making this (laughs) and she was like i don't really she she she's like i'm not a comedy fan so she was like more into dramas (laughs) so she's like i guess i just didn't realize it was a good script and from that i got a manager and um So essentially when Mr. Show ended, I just got into a period for a long time of writing um, film scripts and mainly rewrites where someone would, uh, the original writer would write a script that they liked the idea of, but it didn't come out right. And so they would then get someone to rewrite the script. And that became what I would do for the next 10 years.
0: In television, if you write an original television pilot that gets on the air you create it and the network decides you know what you're not the writer for us or the star of the show says you're not the writer for us and you leave the show you are on the show for the rest of perpetuity and you get paid for the rest of perpetuity right in movies it's a different story where if you write a movie and it's a great movie let's say like ride along greg coolidge had it for eight years wrote it as a white buddy comedy Mm -hmm. and eight years later they brought in two people to rewrite it and they got the credit on the film and greg did not because they rewrote about 75 or 80 percent of it and so in film, you can have films that you see that's unbelievable. There's, like, people have been taken off over and over again. They pay new writers, and sometimes they'll use the credits of the original writers and the new writers, but the bottom line is, is film doesn't have a system where the writer is protected forever.
2: Yeah, they, they essentially, from what I understand, the WGA reads every single draft. You have to number all of these drafts, and they'll have to read... 20 30 drafts of a film in order to figure out how to give credit and and um I've heard stories about directors like directors getting the new draft in from the writers and then just literally putting their name on the title page and making that a new draft just so they can yeah. get credit you know it's it's a very weird system
0: and the other side of the system is when the writers are protected sometimes or the studio just feels like ah eh. Don't want to hire two new writers or one new writer to put the vision forward in a better way. What they'll do is a think tank and they'll hire comedians, normally about eight to ten of them. They pay them around a minimum of i'm going to say five to seventy five hundred for a yeah. week. They sit them all in a room so a they week. so so they spend like about fifty thousand dollars, sometimes as much as a hundred thousand dollars. And they're just in a room and they're just constantly writing jokes for every character, figuring out how to put it. It's less about the story and more about how to make it funnier in the comedy thing. Sort of like Horrible Bosses was an example of this where they used a tremendous amount of young writers, Whitney Cummings being one of them, put them in a room and made it funnier.
2: Yeah, I did that a couple of times and I I don't think I was... I don't think my mind was right to do it because when I would do it... Um, I would I would read a script and go, oh, here's – I wouldn't just give them jokes. I would say, here's everything that's wrong with it that you need to fix. <laughs> and I would go, the structure of this film is all wrong. Here's what you do with it. And I would, like, lay out a new structure. And I think in their minds they were like, we're just paying this guy for jokes. Like, we already have the structure. <laughs> Over-deliver. So, well, I think I was under-delivering in that. I think if I were – I was just asked to do one – literally yesterday that I was here and I couldn't do it. And it was, it was the first time I've been asked to do one in a long time, mainly because I've been too busy. But at the same time, the few times I've done it, I've done it for – I remember Meet the Fockers was definitely one um, where I was really advocating changing a big part of that stru- the structure of that film. And I don't think any of us pitched jokes because we got sidetracked by my big like, here's what you do. And then I saw the film and it was exactly the same <laughs> as when I read it and it worked and it was funny. and It was like, Oh man, I shouldn't, I, I should just do jokes next time. But I did it for Looney Tunes back in action. I remember. And, uh, New York minute was one that I have a crazy story about where the director, um, this is the Olsen twins movie mm-hmm. and the director was in Vancouver prepping the, the film and she was on um, video conference and, we... This was one of these... It was... I remember is the most I've ever been paid for amount of time I've done something um, because it was $5,000 for the day. And um, I went in and we, we met at 10 and from about 10 to 11.30 we pitched jokes and stuff that could happen and set pieces. And then suddenly the video must have frozen for the director but did not freeze for us. So she assumed it probably froze for us and was just frozen. So we could hear everything she was saying, and she turned to her assistant and was like, this is really interesting, isn't it? I mean, these ideas are terrible. We're not gonna do anything that (laughs) these people are saying, but you know, I mean, it's interesting to see this process, isn't it? And the producers who were in the room with us went, (gasps) and like shut off the video thing and said, okay, let's take 10. And then we all left the room, and they must have like, (laughs) you know, told the director what happened. We came back in. And everyone was like, okay, well, uh, I think we got it here. So let's, let's break. <laughs> and it was like, I was paid $5,000 for an hour and a half
0: <laughs> to do nothing. One of my biggest piece of advice is never talk about anything in a public restroom. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's similar to when a Skype freezes, anything just never... Yeah. So, But let's pretend you made the mistake and you were the director. And then it broke and the people told you on the other side, listen, I don't know how to tell you this, but they heard everything you saw and we've got to get back on with them. Tell me when the Skype comes back on what you would say as a director.
2: I think there. there's only one thing you can do which is apologize but i don't know how i i honestly don't know how it's it's a pretty untenable situation i don't know how you salvage the 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 session
0: i think the joke is
2: let me finish (laughs) oh okay you didn't let me finish (laughs) what i was saying is i'm never going to use these jokes (laughs) in my personal life but for a movie, no, I it, you know, to her credit, the director uh, like <laughs> called us all personally afterward. what was weird was was no one ever admitted that it had happened. Everyone acted like it didn't happen, and the director called and was like, "Hey, I just wanted to left a message. I just wanted to thank you personally for doing that session. It was really great." But no, one, no one ever said, "Hey, sorry about that." Uh, You know how it is. Anyway, I'm so glad you came in. You know, everyone just acted like it didn't happen, which was you know, not the way to go in my opinion. I think you just
0: own up to it and go, I fucked up, I'm sorry. The first time you went back to your apartment, you sat down, cracked open whatever you cracked open and drank it or smoked it and said, I did it, I'm doing it, I'm never looking back i'm never going to have to do anything else again i am in this business to stay i am making money in this business to stay and nothing's gonna stop me
2: you know i i was such a big fan of mr show that um honestly when i got the job on that i felt like i would made it already i felt like oh wow um you know i knew comedy history and i knew Monty Python and the kids in the hall and and all of that. And I knew that Mr. Show was something special. And I was like, wow, I feel like I'm actually part of comedy history. Um, I, think, I, th- I think the reverse of that is actually maybe more interesting of once I got on Mr. Show, I kind of thought I was unstoppable. And we wrote the Mr. Show movie and I wrote the Tenacious D movie. And there was a certain time in 2000 where I learned the opposite lesson, which was You don't get everything you want in show business, because the Mr. Show movie, we filmed it, and it flopped spectacularly. And uh, the Tenacious D movie, we were removed, and um, they ended up not making that film. And those both happened at the same time, in, in practically the same month. And that was... I once I got a Mr. Show I was like I'm unstoppable. Nothing's stopping me. Everything I want, we're going to do. I you know, I sure I didn't win the Emmy for for Mr. Show, but whatever we do now is going to be up for Emmys. It's going to be heralded as the next great comedy thing. We're going to make several Mr. Show movies. I'm going to offshoot on that to starring in my own movies, you know, just like I had this sort of plan based on you know, performers that had come before me, especially Monty Python. And when it didn't happen and I suddenly said, oh, holy shit, no one gets what they want <laughs> in this business. I thought that, I thought I was owed all this. Um, that that was interesting to me, I think. and that And that gave me more lessons than just kind of feeling like I was on top, you know? It gave me more lessons of like, the Tenacious D movie that that we wrote um, was such a great calling card. It's a really funny script and got me a lot of work. But one of the lessons I learned was three years later, my agent was saying, "You know what? Uh, everyone's read this already. It's a little stale. You gotta you gotta make something new. You gotta write something new that people like." Um, you know the Between Two Ferns thing. It's great, but you know it it'll be your calling card for just a little while you gotta come up with something new the podcast is great but after a certain point people are not gonna care anymore and you gotta do something new so you sort of have to keep giving people reasons to enjoy your work and keep hustling you can't just sit there and go I've made it and I'm never gonna not work again you have to keep hustling
0: at it six degrees of separation now I'm gonna mention a name great you can say a word a sentence a story anything you want just whatever comes to mind okay Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell,
2: um, big, you know, fan of his, I will say the, what's interesting about comedy to me is, is like performers have to teach you, have to teach you their rhythms before you can, it sort of clicks and you go, oh, I get it. The same thing happened with Reggie Watts for me. The first couple of times I saw him, I was like, is this guy even doing comedy? I can't even figure this out. And then the third time I went, oh, I understand now. This is all improvisational. It's all off the top of his head. Oh, great. This is genius. Same thing with Will Ferrell in the sense of like the first few SNL episodes he was on. I was like, "Eh, I don't think I like this guy, (laughs) which is so insane that he's, you know, one of the greatest comedy performers on that show ever. Um, But, um, you know, super nice guy. I wish he would have done the TV show, (laughs) but he never did. Uh, But the funny, the, uh, you know, Between Two Ferns we did with him was really funny and I enjoyed working with him. Jennifer Lawrence. She was like the coolest person that did Between Two Ferns that day. We essentially, we did the Oscar specials of the Between Two Ferns um, when there was an Oscar luncheon uh, one day where all of the nominees had lunch and part of their promotional duties, because after you do that lunch, you then have to go through like a line of press. And one of the things they could do was go into the Between Two Ferns room and tape some some of Between Two Ferns. And we had sort of scheduled everyone by, you know, in 20-minute increments. And Jennifer Lawrence was scheduled and she came in and then there was some sort of mix-up where someone else like Sally Field or someone um, was late and we were going to have to push Jennifer Lawrence. And here she is, like, you know, one of the bigger movie stars on the planet. And she was just like... Oh, I'm cool. I'll just watch and was like super chill and just like watched two other people jump the line in front of her and was like laughing in the back and I was just like, "Wow, she's so down to earth um you know, and that's my impression of you know being with her for an hour, you know, but it, it seemed like that to me two thousand year old man, my favorite I remember my parents once I said that I was Getting into comedy, um, you know how I don't know if you had this experience with your parents or relatives. Any interest you have, they try to give you a Christmas gift based on it, or a you know a birthday gift based on it. Magicians
0: like, get the magic set. Yeah.
2: Oh, like oh, you're interested in comedy now? Okay, um, so they gave me the um, I think it was a box set called the American Comedy Box Set or something of four. I remember it was tapes. They they didn't even get me CDs, but the, and and there was one. 12 minute track of the 2000 year old man. And it was a pretty spotty box set of stuff that I was like, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks. And then I heard that and it was like, Oh my God, this is so funny. And to know that Mel Brooks is um, for the most part improvising that it was just a revelation to me. And so I went out and got all the records and I studied it and I just became like a Mel Brooks fanatic. And it just really, that's, I think one of the biggest influences on comedy, bang, bang, especially the podcast that there is where you can hear the, the, there's a certain something I think, uh, you know, in like, uh, flamenco music, they call it like Duende or something, which is like a certain, indescribable something that makes something interesting. And when you can hear that in Comedy Bang Bang in The 2000-Year-Old Man, I think that's what people really like about it. Sarah Silverman. Sarah's great. A good friend. Um, known her ever since I started doing comedy in 95. I go to her house to watch all of the award shows if uh, neither of us are working on them. Um, and she usually trots out. Uh, she had a blue dress Designed for her for one year when she was going to the emmys that was such a disaster she like the designer she 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 gave the designer a bunch of stuff she wanted and the designer took their name off of the dress and so she will at a certain point in the evening when we're watching the award show she'll go into a room and come back out in the dress <laughs> and will pose <laughs> and it's such a disaster Andy Samberg. Andy's like the funniest guy I know. Uh, like a uh, uh, what's important, I think too, is he's a genuine, genuine person and one of the more um, like kind of sensitive human beings as well that I know. Uh, but works so hard, and I think that the, when we did the Emmys this last year, no one involved in the Emmys could really believe how hard he was working because I think they're used to hosts who, you know, because they're busy or what, in my opinion, maybe half acid. And Andy was there from 9am till late at night, every single day, um, reading new sketches, writing new sketches, learning dance routines. Like he, the, the guy works incredibly hard. And I think that that's the only way you can be as successful as him jack black jack's cool jack i mean we it's funny he he uh he was doing tenacious d when bj and i were doing the fun bunch and he and kyle talk about how they they were doing it like two months before we started and they heard about us like hey do you hear these guys are ripping off your act and they were like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who's this fun bunch ripping off our act and then they came to see us and we're like they're nothing like us <laughs> they don't do songs what do they do and um so jack jack is really funny i've known him ever since he was just like this kind of weirdo who would hang out at parties that everyone but everyone always knew his like talent was undeniable um everyone was just always like if you put him in front of a cam- or, yeah in front
0: of a camera you knew you would get gold one of my favorite words undeniable steve carell
2: Steve Carell, I don't really know that well. Um, My wife worked with him. She's on an episode of The Office um, where she played um, one of his Benihana girlfriends. Um, That was like her first big break. And she said he was like a super cool dude. And then I did that Between Two Ferns with him, which was a great experience. I think he didn't know. We pitched the idea to him that he was going to slam Zach, and he didn't really get it. and, And then... We started doing it and he went, oh, he goes, give me those jokes. And we'd written a ton of jokes about Zach. And he was like, I get it now. And then like destroyed. It's probably the best episode of Between Two Ferns. Goofy. <laughs> I You bring this up because I played Goofy at Disneyland um, when I was, I believe, 17 and 18. That was the worst job I ever had. Um, I was Goofy and Br'er Bear and um, Captain Hook. In an incredibly hot summer in Anaheim and uh, they now have fans I believe in those costumes but at the time they didn't so they were the hot it was the hottest uh, worst job I've ever had
0: Justin Bieber
2: Justin Bieber I just met him the one time that he did between two ferns and you know um, seemed uh, alternatingly really down to earth and quiet and kind of maybe oppressed by his fame and uh, alternatingly, also kind of maybe a little, <laughs> a little too cocky uh, for it. You know, there were there were a couple of things that happened that were, you know, not what we wanted to happen on the shoot. But um, you know, made a good video.
0: Bob Odenkirk and David Cross.
2: David Cross is. You know, what's weird is I always had the impression that Bob was the nice, down to earth one, and David was the asshole. And then as you get to know him david kind of reveals himself to be the really nice like guy that you want to hang out in the bar with and bob is actually just like a workhorse who is nice as well but not someone you go like necessarily go hang out with because he's always in his mind like i gotta get back to my kids i gotta get back to my kids you know but david really warms up once you get to know him hot saucerman (laughs) hot saucerman is kind of my nickname it i'm trying to recall how it started but for a while on the podcast, I was mispronouncing my name. Um,
0: how do you, <laughs> how because, do you figure up the character of mispronouncing your well,
2: name? Well, <laughs> here's the deal. I have this kind of name that <laughs> one when people read it, it's constantly like, what is this? Ackerman? Ackerman? I was talking to Mollyn Ackerman, who is on Comedy Bang Bang in the next 10 episodes, and she has the same thing. Like everyone calls her Ackerman and they call me Ackerman, you know? And it's like, it was just kind of my my thing of like taking back the night in regards to my name of like, look, you, no one knows how to pronounce it. I'm just going to mispronounce it all the time. And so I remember I would just kind of like stumble over my name or say the wrong names. And, um, uh, when on for the TV show, the reason that we do that on the TV show is because the director happened to watch, He was like, if I'm going to direct your show, I want to watch you do the podcast once. And I was doing the whole weird name thing. And he goes, I got a good idea. You're going to introduce yourself and we're going to have a super with a different fake name every time. And I was like, all right, let's see. And it's become like a big thing. Amy Poehler. Amy is great. She is, um, you know, just hands down one of the funniest people that I've ever met. Um, She just is like a force. She's like you can't take your eyes off of her. Um, I I got to know her through the UCB when I was producing the comedy death ray show there. And um, you know, I would do ask cat monologues with her and just, you know, uh, one of the, one of the funniest people. I I remember when we were doing the Emmys this year, we were like, we had a bit that we wanted to do with Andy and Amy. And we were, we were, we heard like Amy can't do rehearsal. (laughs) And, And we were forced with this, do we cut the bit? And we're just like, you know, and if things are going wrong, cut to Amy Poehler. That's a good rule for for doing an award show. So we kept the bit in. It was really funny, you know, even even though they had never rehearsed it.
0: Aziz Ansari.
2: Aziz is funny. I got to know him like when he first moved to LA. He had been doing, obviously, stand up in New York. And I think they'd been doing Human Giant. And, um, you know, I, I feel like I've known him since he was a young kid, you know, but I, I also feel like I was, just, you know, I'm not that much older than him, maybe a decade or something. But, um, yeah, it's it's he's one of those people where, you know, I feel like Chris Rock has this with their delivery. It's like it doesn't even matter what they're saying. They can make you laugh. You know, it's it's I think Chris Rock said something about how a stand up comedian has to be one part preacher and I feel like he and Aziz have that of like, convincing people to laugh. It's almost like a steamroller. It's like overpowering just how their delivery is so, so funny.
0: Seth Rogen.
2: Seth Rogen, you know, um, I think he's, <laughs> it's so funny. Someone asked me once like, who is who's out there in show business you're not a personal friend of that you feel like you could be a personal friend of? And I was like, you know, I have met Seth five times I feel like he in different circumstances he could be a personal friend of mine but I just never have you know worked with him to such an extent that I've ever gotten to hang out with him but like he did the comedy bang bang tv show the first season when it was it was close friends of mine were on the couch and he was one of the people who was just like I was chit-chatting with him, and I was like, so what are you up to? And he was like, oh, my God, I'm so busy. I'm doing this and this and this, and I have no time to do anything. And I go, what are you doing here? And he goes, but this is cool. This is fun. (laughs) I was just like, oh, wow, that's a way to live your life. Like, do the fun things, you know? Jerry Seinfeld. I have never met him. Um, Have was really, really into his work in the, in the, uh, eighties when I was in high school. I, you know, just there, he was the gold standard and, you know, still is of standup comedians very into it. When I heard he was doing Seinfeld at a TV show, um, I was one of the rabid fans who was there from episode one, you know, he did four episodes that first year and, um, and he was almost doing like David Mamadi type material on that show as well um and he was a big influence on me and i was just like sold like i i thought those first four episodes were so funny and i was like into it from the jump and so you know and and i I think he's someone who's who you can really respect as like you know he's a guy who worked super super hard you know brad Pitt. um again just met him the day we did between two ferns but like came in made everyone feel comfortable, talked about what a big fan he was of the show. And then um, we didn't have a lot of time to film with him and not as much time as we normally do, but he was so funny that um, as little time as he had, we were just like, yeah, we got it. And then it turned
0: out to be a really funny video. Last one, Zach Galifianakis.
2: Zach is a really great person. Um, I think it is interesting to me to see someone who is thrust into fame he's not thrust into it i mean he he you know he certainly took roles and but he's a guy who does it for the for the for the love of comedy you know what i mean he's not a guy who does it because he wants to be famous he hates the stuff that comes along with fame um i've never seen anyone like actively turn down more stuff than him but i think it's important to to see that because he keeps it pure you know and he doesn't care about the trappings of am I invited to parties or you know I was at a party the other day at San Diego Comic-Con it was the EW party and not to talk shit on it because I'd like to go again maybe someday but I was sort of talking I was talking to someone who similarly was there and I was like I was it was too packed and I was like why what happened in my childhood why is it so important that I be invited to this? Why? Why was I like looking forward to this, and why did I look at it and go, "Oh, good, I was invited to this"? And why did I come? And I'm sitting around and I can't talk to anyone, and and it's too crowded. I was like, "Why? Why? Why was this so important to me?" And you have to rem- you have to remember stuff like that. Like Zach is is a guy who is not enticed by any of that, and you have to remember that you're getting into the business to do the work, and not to not for the trappings of Am I going to be invited to the party where all the starlets are at? You know, it's 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 really inspiring to watch how he
0: lives his life. Your greatest holy shit moment story of your entire career, Um. the one that would be the highlight chapter of your book.
2: I mean, I, I certainly think I've already gone into the Obama thing a lot, which is, you know, I think. Probably one of the biggest, especially, you know, we were asked to come back to the White House again and um, meet him after that um, in a in a sort of celebration of the fact that the Affordable Care Act got um, got through and and in celebration of all the people who helped along that. And and that was one that I was able to take my wife to um, because she wasn't able to go to the actual um, taping Um, and. That what I what I like about that was, it was it was a uh, two hundred people in the White House kind of milling about. There were a lot of people who helped out with that, but the um, advisor to the president came by to a few of us and said, "Hey, the president would like to thank you personally because not everyone was was getting to actually talk to him." And so uh, Adam Scott and I were pulled aside, and they said, "The president would like to talk to you personally," and. Um, I looked over at my wife and the president was like, I'm sorry, but you know, significant others can't come. And I was just like, Oh man. And he's like, I'm really sorry, but you know, it's just gotta be a one-on-one. So I went into the other room where we were sort of lined up and, um, unbeknownst to me, my wife was like in the bathroom, like tearing up, (laughs) like she was, it was such a bummer for her. And suddenly the advisor came over and said, okay, I asked, and she can come in. She can come in. Where is she? And I would, I don't know. Where is she? And I started texting her furiously, but the cell reception's not good in the White House. And so I couldn't get a hold of her. I was calling her. And finally, they found her, and um, she got to come in, and we were the last people in line. And there's just the picture of... Uh, the president and the first lady and my wife and me just all of us arm in arm (laughs) and we both have looks on our face like holy shit i can't believe this um i haven't like posted that anywhere that seems like something you would like post on instagram or whatever but i've just kept it in our office you know it's like definitely one of those things that i sometimes Someone, someone will say to me occasionally on, on Twitter or something like, you've had the weirdest career <laughs> and, you know, from like interviewing you too and, you know, like the president and stuff like that. And so I'll just keep stuff like that around to remind myself, like, I can't believe what uh, the kind of stuff that's happened to me. Your proudest moment in show business.
1: I think,
2: you know, you spend all of show business trying to like get stuff or get the acclaim or get, you know, I remember when we didn't win the Emmy, um, for Mr. Show, I was like, well, it's, I'm going to feel good when I, when I get that Emmy finally. Um, and then, then I won my first Emmy and I was like, oh, all right. (laughs) It was like, not a big deal in a way. I don't know. Like, so, so I sort of learned to kind of, It wasn't like I won that and was like,
1: Ooh, yes,
2: this is the culmination of a career. It was just like, Oh, here's this trophy now that I have to keep. I think we were going to, we were writing a sketch for comedy bang bang about, um, a person who wins awards because they need more (laughs) doorstops because they kept expanding their house and adding additions. And they were like, I got more doors. I need more doorstops. Um, I honestly think that the, the the proudest I think I've been was when I was hired on Mr. Show. I think it was like, holy shit, I can't believe it. I'm... I'm part of something that I consider to be one of the greatest shows um in comedy history. So, I it, it it all goes back to the beginning for me, and which is why I wanted to return to to help them on their recent show.
0: Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level.
2: I mean, I think I mentioned it before, it was that double whammy of the Mr. Show movie and the Tenacious D movie. It just was like I remember even with the Tenacious D movie, I had I had turned down and being paid for an extra step of the writing because I was like, Oh, well when the movie gets made that money's owed to me anyway. So we'll just, you know, whatever. And then suddenly it didn't, get, I w- that's the mindset I was in of like, Oh, the movies getting made uh, Mr. Show movies coming out and people are going to love it. So that double whammy of just both of those things being um, terrible experiences just shocked me and put me in a stupor that I think I had to climb out of. And I had to just kind of say okay now i'm gonna do something new and not i'm not gonna get what i want in in life and i'm gonna have to just kind of do it myself how did you climb out of it you know i really just started doing stuff that i wanted to do that made me happy um you know i went 10 years or so writing rewriting scripts and and most of them not getting made and Shark Tale was the only one that I think I worked on that actually went up on the screen, and it's no great movie or whatever. So I was, I, when I started, first of all, started, Comedy Death Ray started producing the, the live show Comedy Death Ray, which I did for 10 years. Um, that was a big, great creative release, and I did it just for the love, never got any money out of it. And then when I started doing the podcast, that was just like, hey, I am misperforming. Let me get out there and just do a podcast and let's just do it. And there was never any plan for it. There was never any like, I think that we could, you know, uh, take this podcast and make it into a TV show. That was that would have been insane to me. The fact it turned into a TV show was never part of the plan. It was just something that fell into my lap. I was just doing it for fun. And I think I think when you do things for fun, that's when good things can come.
0: You know, you start a podcast, like I started this one, you start it, and before you start, the day before you launch it, there's no listeners. Yeah. And then it builds and something happens if people like it. And (laughs) that's the thing. You put stuff out there and you know right away, like the Mr. Show movie. Right. Look, you did everything. A hundred people are working on this thing. Another hundred are putting it together. And you all look at it and you're like, hey, this is going to go great. And it doesn't. Mm-hmm the podcast you just put it out there what was the episode or the week or the time how long had you been doing it before something happened where you're like holy shit we're kicking ass i think i think i i
2: separate that between creatively and and audience wise because i kind of always had an audience like i i had i had an audience of like two thousand people i knew would listen to something i put out right so the podcast from week one I had like 2000 people that would listen to it. So I was always fine in that regard. And it just kind of grew creatively for me. It was like around episode eight or something. I can't remember when we had uh, Andy Daly on the show and up to that episode, it was pretty much a straightforward interview program. And, um, it was also a little like where comedians would be on a talk show where I would like lead them into their bits, you know? And, um, Andy was on and he was doing a character that I knew pretty well because I'd booked him on the live show a lot and I knew the beats of it very well. And so I started sort of like trying to improvise around the beats and he was a character who, one of his beats was that he wanted to buy a very heavy trench coat so he could commit suicide by walking into the ocean (laughs) and it would drag him down. And that normally in the bit was just like an aside And I started talking to him about the coat a lot. I was like, got very fixated on where he bought the coat, what (laughs) what style of coat it was. And Andy was really, really funny talking about this. Like, why are you asking me about the coat all the time? And then he would give me a lot of improvise a lot of details about it. And I remember leaving that show going, "Oh wow, that was fun. That felt like the two thousand year old man to me. Where that like." It wasn't like kind of a canned, like I know all the beats to this and I'm just setting you up. That, that was what felt like the show to me. And that's, that's to me where I think Comedy Bang Bang really became a unique thing rather than just like an interview show.
0: Last question. You've seen so many different performers come up from when you were starting. You've seen so many different people in all areas of our business who are doing so many different things in the entertainment business. And so what advice would you give for the young performer, the young person out there who lives in some area like Orange County and is trying to figure out their way what they're doing and how to get to the next level and have the kind of career that you've had? I
2: think, you know, number one, I said it before, you just first of all you have to move. You you have it, it even though I I lived forty five minutes south in Orange County, it seemed impenetrable to me. The idea of moving up to L.A. Well, I don't know anyone there. I don't know anyone in show business. I don't. How would how would I even do it? How would I break in? How would I give my thing to someone in order to have them read it? It just seems daunting. And it seems I remember when I first went away to college, too. It was that kind of thing of like, wait, I I was accepted to an arts college. I won't know anyone there. And the fact that one of my best friends went was the only reason I went ahead and went up there. You know, it's very scary. I think to people to like throw themselves into the unknown, but you just have to do it. And you, you can't think about how you're going to get into the business. You just have to like throw yourself into it and study and, you know, take classes or constantly write and show your friends stuff. I mean, you know, when BJ Porter and I did the fun bunch stuff, yeah, we started at the comedy show, but the or the comedy store, but the part that isn't paid attention to a lot is we rented theaters and we put up our sketch shows and and made them free and gave away free beer in order for people to come. Um, and we made it a, a social thing, at least, for people to come <laughs> to see the show, hoping that they would laugh. And, you know, I remember at one point I... I uh, we had written a 75-minute musical that we put up, um, and we put it up for one night, and Brian Posehn was in it and um, Paula Tompkins and a bunch of people, and we put it up only one night, and we rehearsed it for months, and we did it one night, and Bob Odenkirk was in the crowd, and after we did it, he was like, oh, that was incredible, but why did you do it? He's like, why why would you do that? I mean, no, you know, it's sold out. Sure. But like the industry, no one from the industry is here. Like, and you're not doing it again. And I was like, I don't know, we did it for fun. And he was like, why? And in my head, I'm going, because you're here, Bob, and you're going to give me a, a, a job on your show, I hope, you know, but, but to me, that's the part that people don't pay attention to is, Is you really have to go out there and hustle and constantly be doing it. And I put up a, I performed somewhere every single week and I put up a sketch show like every month and constantly hustling and out there and trying to get people to see your stuff. And that's the only way it can happen. Um, You can't just sit around in your apartment and go, how come no one's looking at my stuff? Or how come, you know, how can I put my stuff into the right person's hands? You just gotta make stuff.
0: Scott Ackerman, you were amazing oh, today. Barry, me. thank you. You were really, 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 really inspirational. Thank you, Barry.
2: That's nice of you to say.
0: I hope you know how sincere I am. You know, it's odd I can share this with you. Permission to speak freely? Per- granted. I've never said this on a podcast. When you walked in the room today, everybody gets vibes from people. You walk in every room You go to a pitch, you don't know who's gonna be what, how they're feeling, what's going on. When you walked in the room today, honestly, I felt like, oh man, I get the vibe that this person's gone through a lot this week, he's done so many things, and he's here because he's fulfilling the commitment, and he's here because he knows how badly I want him, but he's here, and I felt that energy, wrong or right, and I said to myself, I know if I can just sit down with this person, I know if he can just start talking about his journey, I know he's going to realize how special his life really is and how much it means oh to my people. Oh gosh. I think one of the things I'm most proud of this week is that I think I accomplished the goal of being the facilitator of helping you share your story with people. And I know they're going to love it a lot. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Barry. It was a pleasure
2: to talk to you. And mainly I think what you're reacting to is I got new glasses and they make everything very fuzzy for me. <laughs> and I'm just getting used to them. I, it's my third day with glasses and I, I, I find my uh, walking around is very
0: difficult. Well, you look very distinguished. Thank
2: you very much.
0: Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on Gerald DeMauro from Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Congratulations, Gerald. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Spishlad, S P S H L A D, August 15th, 2016. That's a recent one. Heading is Howie Mandel, five stars, and it reads absolutely brilliant! Exclamation point, absolutely brilliant! Exclamation point, exclamation point. Absolutely brilliant exclamation point exclamation point exclamation point How lucky are we that we get to enjoy him and benefit from all his childlike wonder I laughed and cried even when it seemed slightly inappropriate to have done one or the other Did I say absolutely brilliant question mark Wow thank you so much fish lad I am so grateful, and congratulations. All right, as always, this has been an episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, live from Montreal. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
1: They say it's the glory, the scream screaming name. put you on shoulders, walk you to fame. You get all the money, drive that fancy car, and all the people love you, cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamer, they have all the gain. It's never quite over, so it all feels the same.